in the next few moments, you're going to get uh, a lot more of our experience in, in our trip in Haiti. And uh, one of the things that uh, we like to start with is uh, there's a, a video. Uh, Harold, who is our media guy, most of you know Harold Franklin, he was part of the team. And Harold was up till 3 in the morning. We got back, I mean, you got back about, what, 11 o'clock and worked on the video till 3 in the morning. It's a, a six-minute snippet of our experience this last week that you'll get, and then you'll get a much broader perspective as the team during the video will come up and, and we'll, we'll share a little bit about what God did in us over this last week. So go ahead and take a look at the screens. Could we live like your grace is stronger than all our faults and failures? Could we live like your love is deeper than our hearts could fathom? Could we live like this? Could we live like your
in a moment, you're going to hear a few of the team members share their experience, but I wanted to mention a few things before we get to, to that point. First of all, I want to say thank you for many of you who supported team members and sponsored them and, and uh, to make it possible for us to go. Uh, and a couple of the very, very important things is a couple people that, that uh, I want to acknowledge. Um, Greg Barshaw, Greg, would you stand? Um, that's as long as I can get you to stand, isn't it, Greg? <laughs> uh, if you were here a few weeks ago, some of you know Greg. Uh, Greg was on the video. But Greg um, runs Connect2 Ministries, which was how our connection going to Haiti. Um, and you'll hear a bit about this in, in a little bit. But um, we didn't... What you saw in the video, you saw a building being built and you saw VBS, which are great things. But that's not what the trip was really about. The trip was about understanding what God is doing in Haiti and what God is doing in us. And what you're going to hear in just a few moments was, is not the, the report on Haiti for your giving so that you know that your giving did something. What you're going to hear is not about what we did, but what we learned. And there's a big difference. Because the 14 people on this team are completely different than when we left. Because there's things that we became aware of, not because we have kind of the, the high of going and doing a mission trip, but it's the profound conviction of what we learn while we're there that will change the way we live our lives. And I want to say thank you to Greg for that, because you'll hear a little bit more about it later, but every night we had a debrief with Greg. And those were the best of times and the worst of times, because he challenged us with questions he forced us to grapple with Scripture in the words of Jesus and in the context of poverty and brokenness in Haiti. What was Jesus saying in those passages? What does it mean our responsibility is for ourselves and for those around us? And it really made us think differently than we've ever thought before. And so I want to say and thank you for Greg and, uh, and what God is using him to connect with the churches in Haiti and seeing God do amazing things there. So also another thing was, was pretty crazy is that you have to, sometimes you have to travel to other parts of the world to figure out that you have distant relatives that you didn't even know you had. In fact, um, you guys want to stand up. This is the majority of the Amstutz family um, that <clears throat> I didn't know. I had heard rumors of other Amstutzes, but usually they're connected to Ohio or Indiana or Switzerland. And so we're there, and Bob inter- or, uh, Greg introduces me to Bob, who's not here, Bob Amstutz, and Carrie's husband, and says, yeah, you guys have the same last name. It's not like Jones, you know, it's Amstutz, you know. And as it turns out, uh, Bob was born in Bern, Indiana, where my dad was born, and he has uh, also, my, my grandma's maiden name was Habegger, and he has Habeggers in his family. So it's like this crazy thing. In the middle of Haiti, it's like, wow, welcome to your family. <laughs> so anyway, and they're, they're here today, because they were there as well during that same time. They were another team that was working with an orf- the or- one of the orphanages that Greg uh, helps to facilitate, and they were building uh, stuff for, ra- really, a rabbit farm. Um, they're raising rabbits as a food source because, obviously, protein is at a premium for people in Haiti, and, and so they were building and working with kids and doing all- And they were great because they showed up at our job site a couple times and helped us out, and then one night when we were disposing of expired medication, a bunch of our team jumped on until like late into the night. They're all dumping pills. It was really great. They weren't taking pills. They were dumping pills, okay? But anyway, it's just an incredible experience. So, um, so what we like to do, in fact, uh, Steve's going to be first. The rest of those, uh, you guys can go ahead and, and grab a seat, but those who are going to share, um, uh, you can stay up here. But uh, understand what we, what we want you to understand from this morning um, is, is what God did in us and now understanding what that means for us as individuals, what that means for our church, what that means for us as individuals that make up our church. 
Because going on a trip like this does something very important. It makes you responsible. Because you see and you hear and you learn things that maybe you had missed before. And when you capture them, you're changed. Not because you have a new understanding of something, but because you have a new conviction and responsibility to now live according to what you know and what Jesus has spoken to you. And so that's, that's the things you're going to hear this morning. So Steve, go ahead and start us off. Good morning. It's amazing when you say yes to mission. Uh, nothing can prepare you for how God will change your heart and how he'll change you from the inside out. Um, with that being said, I, I thought initially I was going to build a building. And uh, when we built a building, uh, the construction process, the whole thing was amazing. But uh, that's not really what we were doing there. Um, we were building relationships. And for me, I, I had got on a whole different level with my relationship with the king of the universe. Um, and that being said, I built relationships with, with my, my team partners. Um, I mean, I've known all of them for a long time, most of them for a long time. But uh, nothing on the level that we got to know each other there on. And uh, then we partnered with Haitian men and women on the ground, as you saw in some of the video. And uh, these are some amazing, amazing people. So I, I came today to talk about two people that touched my lives over there. Um, they're Philip and Fario Pipo. They, they were amazing men. They're brothers. Um, they came from one of the poorest cities in Haiti, City Soleil. And uh, they hopped on a tap-tap, which is uh, kind of like the transit system. And it's... Uh, <laughs> it's... Uh, it's kind of an equivalent to a pickup truck with a really high shell on it. It's diesel-powered, and many people ride in it, arm-to-arm, leg-to-leg, hand-to-hand. You just jump on and go. It's kind of the transportation. Anyway, that's really not what's important. What's important is, are the relationships that we built on the ground there with these people. Um, these these people there in um, City Soleil are so poor. I mean, the children are so poor, they don't know they're naked. They, they don't know they don't have anything. They don't know they're poor. These are the happiest, sweetest little children that you would ever see. They have no clue that, that life could be any different. This is life. And they are just a joy to be around from the moment that you, they touch you, from the moment you touch their hearts and they touch you. Uh, it, it changes you. It changes you to see hundreds, hundreds of them just crawling around, playing with each other, throwing stones, doing things. It's amazing. What could occupy their day? So that being said, um, working with these two men, um, they're the hardest working men I've ever worked with. Um, they, didn't, uh, they didn't come there looking to work for money. They, they came there. This was the third project I think they worked on. And uh, what they didn't realize is that uh, God's already captured their heart. He's already been working on them. Uh, the third uh, church process they got in, involved in the building on. And uh, we got to know them quite personally, at least I did. I worked with them every day, arm in arm and hand in hand. And um, the, the story of them is that uh, they, they got involved in a church in their own town. And um, the people there, they're different. They have dreads, they had tattoos, and that's really frowned upon, frowned upon in their society. And they felt shunned by the people in their church. Not by their church, but by the people. 
And so they kind of backed off a little bit. And in the course of, uh, we had an interpreter named John, who's an amazing guy. And uh, through courses of our talking to each other back and forth while we were working, I let them know that God didn't care. Jesus, this Jesus that I know doesn't care if you have dreadlocks. He doesn't care what your appearance is. He doesn't care if you have tattoos. He cares about your heart. He cares where your heart's at. He cares if you know him or not. And that he accepts you for who and whatever you are. And that all you need is to bring him yourself and give him your heart. And he'll love you. And he'll love on you. And uh, they're not aware that uh, Jesus has already captured their heart. Um, we, we prayed with them. John, I, and a group of guys prayed over them. They didn't come to Christ yet, but they're on their way. They're really on their way. And uh, they really changed my life, these guys. Just uh, seeing what they had to go to to get to work every day. And it's a 10-mile tap-tap ride from their city to Onoville. And uh, it's, not, uh, it's not like the freeway. Oh. <laughs> In fact, it's some of the toughest road, back road and bumpy road and rocky road you've ever been on. But uh, their journey they take is amazing. These are amazing men. And I believe God's going to do an amazing work with them. I believe these two brothers will do amazing things together and that they will help plant churches. They just don't know it yet. And I'm sure by the time another team goes there, we'll have heard a great story of how they accepted Christ. They're on their way. Thank you. Okay, good morning. You see I have my Kleenex ready? Okay. I'd like to give you a glimpse into a lady I met. Her name is Abernathy and her son, Woobly. I met her when we were doing VBS, as she would bring Woobly each day, even though he was about two to three. She'd sit in the back and then faithfully wash the floor. It's just a concrete, dirty, dusty floor. She faithfully washed that every afternoon after the children left. She's very shy, single parent, and pregnant, due in, in September. I could see her weariness as she'd sit on that back bench all day long, listening and, and watching, and, and she'd lay down sometimes on, that, on the bench that we would probably not know how to sit on. It's not very wide, but she'd lay down and, and take her nap as she needed to. And I talked with her on Thursday through an interpreter and she said she comes to church, and she does have Jesus in her heart. So I asked her, I said, well, what are some concerns that you have that I could pray with you about? She said, well, I have many, but she shared two. First of all, the delivery of her child. There's no real hospitals or doctors, maybe a midwife if she's lucky. And also the process of raising her very active son. And um, we experienced seeing her very active son as he would run around as we were doing VBS, but cute anyway. And so I prayed with her. She has no income. She lives alone in what they call a dwelling, tent city. Onaville is an area where the government moved this tent city that was in Port-au-Prince, moved them out to the hillside. And as you look on the hillside, you just see tents and shacks all over. And she was in one of those. And I know when I, you know, you don't know, there's not much 
to those particular dwellings, but she lives with her son in one of those because she was displaced. When I prayed with her, she seemed so thankful, and she just, you know, gave me a hug. We hugged, and, and I told her I would keep praying for her because you, know, you could just feel that she just needed that, and that's what she was happy for. That was Thursday. On Friday morning when I got there and she came in, she was, came up and wanted to give a hug again right away. And I, it's just, you know, that little bit of a connection. Pastor Puis, her pastor, told me that her house may have some, some tin on the side. Maybe not. But the structure is so full of cracks and holes that when she and her son sleep, or especially if it's raining, they have to kind of cuddle pretty tight together and squeeze in so they don't get wet. That hit me. My heart broke. I don't have a roof that leaks. I don't have anything like that. I'm very comfortable. Anyway, like I said, my heart broke as I heard her situation. And I thought, what can I do? But then I remembered a message the Lord had given to me about hope. The morning that I was leaving Uganda, I had gone to Uganda on a trip just prior to this particular one. I was already burdened with the poverty that I had seen there. And I knew Haiti was even probably more destitute. But the Lord gave me some words of comfort and meaning. I opened my little devotional book that I use, and this was what I read that morning that I needed. Hope is a golden cord connecting you to heaven. This cord helps you hold your head up high, even when multiple trials are buffeting you. I never leave your side, and I never let go of your hand. Wow, I needed that, because I was feeling pretty hopeless after Uganda, thinking, how am I going to react in in Haiti? I don't want to go. Hope is what Abernathy needs to survive each day, just to get through one day at a time. And she has that hope because she has Jesus in her heart. That's all I can offer her, and that's all that she needs because that will last. It's only through our hope and salvation that she will have something to look forward to and to make it through her daily struggles You know, like I said, I can't provide a new place for, you know, all those daily things she needs. But God can, and he will. Hope puts us on the same level. You know, when you think about it, my surroundings or our surroundings, there are a lot of distractions for us. And we often get our focus off of where our hope really should be and what our purpose in life truly is. At least I know that's the way it is for me. Our comforts mean nothing when it comes time to heaven and salvation. And so when I look at that and I look at Abernathy and her son and I say, you know, she's on the same level I am, thank the Lord. In God's eyes, we both will go to heaven and we'll both receive the reward that he has for us. I changed my perspective from feeling hopeless for what I was seeing, to knowing that my main role now is and what I need to actively share, whether it's in Haiti, Uganda, or here, 
is I actively need to share hope for, of what God is and hope of salvation to everyone that I meet. That's the only thing that counts. What was interesting also is after the Lord gave me that message, he confirmed it through Greg on our first night that we were there and also through scripture that I was reading throughout the whole week. It was like every verse it seemed or every passage I was reading kept saying hope, hope, and I'm like, yay, I need that. Anyway, in, if I can get these on, in Psalms 33 verses 18 to 22, I just want to sum up with, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him, our hearts rejoice. May your unfailing, oh, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. You know, without hope, life is poor and meaningless for everybody. morning. I wanted to talk today about perspective and mostly about the condition of our hearts and how oftentimes here we choose to live in stress and we choose to live in ungratefulness and we choose to live in the want. I want more. I want more. I want more. And we forget to step back and say, dang God, you have blessed me with so much already. This is a picture of a woman who by our standards has nothing. Has nothing. I was thinking this morning of if she walked in our church service today, what would she think? And she'd think, oh my gosh, there's carpet on the ground. You have actual chairs for individual people that have cushions on them and a back to it. Every person in here has shoes on their feet and their feet are clean. You know, and it's, it's a different perspective. If I lived in her life a week ago, I would have been very depressed. And I would have thought all the time of, why, why God, why did you curse me to live here? Why would I believe in you? Why would I follow you if I have nothing? But her name is Madame Wilte Solian. Um, we just called her Madame for short because her name is kind of hard to say. But Madame, she's renting a room from the people next door. The building that's behind us is kind of an outhouse. It's a little hole dug in the ground where they use the restroom and it's right next to where they wash all their clothes and wash all their dishes and where a flock of goats kind of runs through all the time. And it's right in the middle. There's a little courtyard and they have little houses around it that look very much like that building. And she's renting a room from a family there because her family lives about two hours away in the mountains. And Madame has 11 children. And I mean, think about it here. Those of you who have any kids, I don't, but I can hardly afford myself. But imagine trying to pay for 11 children here. I mean, do the math. It's a lot. It's a lot. And there, four out of 10 children die before the age of five of starvation, of protein deficiency, of whatever it is. They don't make it. And Madame realizes that 11 out of 11 of her children are still alive. Her youngest child is eight years old, and they've already defied all the odds there in Haiti. And the thing that struck me the most about her was her smile. She doesn't have a lot of teeth, but she still smiled anyway. 
And whatever we walked up, she'd give us a hug and she'd be so full of joy and excited that we were there, you know, and she was blessing us so much. But whenever we walked up, it was, she was excited. She was excited to serve alongside us, to cook food for all those children. And I kept thinking when I saw her serving up scoopful after scoopful of rice, I wondered if she thought, I wonder if my kids are going to eat today. I wonder if my kids are going to make it until tomorrow. Her husband used to work, but he got in an accident and lost his arm. So he can't work anymore. So the brunt of her family, the weight of her family is squarely on her shoulders, and she never fails to smile. And we learn about the joy of the Lord and living in that and the peace that transcends transcends all understanding. And, And on this side of the world, it's almost like we don't even know how to live in that. We don't need God. We don't. And we live in a place where we don't even think about how we don't need God. But there she realizes that God has given her everything. And she understands, like in the song we sang, Christ is enough. Christ is enough for me. The gift that he gave when he hung on the cross should be more than enough. It's sufficient. And yet we want more. And she realizes that even if God never gave her anything else but his sacrifice, that's enough. And she chooses to live in that, that condition of her heart that Jesus is all I need because Jesus is all she has. And we have so much that we pile it up in front of the cross and we forget what's important. You know, and, and she blessed my heart so much. And there's another side to it as well of we saying in, give me faith. How's it go? Someone sing it for me. Mm-hmm. Your love is great. You alive. My flesh may fail. <laughs> I may be weak, but your spirit's strong in me. Thank you. My flesh may fail, but my God, you never will. I mean, I, I looked over and saw Matt sitting in front, busted leg. You understand what it's like when your body fails you. We think about flesh, which it's true, it's our sinful nature. You know, not to go into all the Greek or whatever, but sarks means sinful nature, and it also means flesh of the body and we oftentimes here live in our sinful nature. Oh, God, thank you that when I sin, you're still there. But we don't know what it's like to say, God, my body is shutting down because I haven't eaten in who knows how long. I haven't had clean water in days. But thank you that you're still strong in me. Thank you that even though I am weak, you are strong, and I can get up and choose to have a smile. I can get up and choose to feed people even though my children are starving. And it's a whole perspective change that rocked my world when I was there. And it's, are we going to choose to move forward and live in the heart condition that Jesus has for us? Are we going to continue to live in the excess, in the things that we don't need, and continue to seek after our wants? But Madame taught me that there are more important things, and that even if God took everything away from me, I still had him, and that's what matters. So John already kind of said um, that at night we would have these debrief meetings with Greg. And like he said, they weren't debrief. We didn't talk about, hey, how'd the nail hitting go today? Or how was cutting? And how was the VBS? Um, He would ask us these tough questions because in his wisdom, he knew what we were in for before we knew what we were in for emotionally and and all that. So uh, 
one of the first couple nights, he says, uh, I'm sure he put it better than I'm going to put it, but basically he said, let's talk about the sovereignty of God. And I said, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I'm tired. I want to talk about the sovereignty of God. I mean, I'm sure you, some of you people here are probably thinking, I could give a 20-minute dissertation on the sovereignty of God. And then some of you guys are like me. You're like, how do you spell sovereignty? <laughs> That's a tough word. Uh, I, I, I knew what it meant, you know, and basically the, the dumbed-down fireman version is God is God, right? God is God. But um, I looked up and uh, wrote down a couple things just to kind of help us out here. Um, all things are under God's rule and control. Nothing happens without his direction or his permission. Um, God being sovereign is not just a principle that we can think about, choose to believe, choose to live by. It's a fact. Whether we decide to live by that or not, it's still a fact. God is sovereign. Whether you want to believe it or not, whether we believe, you know, he's sovereign. Um. I was thinking about this, and, uh, you know, here where we live in the United States, the sovereignty of God, you know, God's God, yay, you know, I mean, it's true, God is God, but we kind of, I think we kind of just brush over it. Every once in a while, someone we know might get sick, get a disease, get cancer or something, and we say, God's in control, uh, God has a purpose, God turns all things together, you know, for good, and I mean, there's millions of passages about the sovereignty of God, um, Every once in a while, a tragedy might happen, a big crash or a, an earthquake or whatever, and we go, oh, but God's in control, right? And I think we tend to just kind of gloss right over the top of that. Um, what we lived with, what we experienced this week is uh, the sovereignty of God at a much higher level. <clears throat> in Haiti... God is sovereign when you have a country that is a wreck and then has an earthquake that kills hundreds of thousands of people. But God is sovereign. In Haiti, like uh, Stacy said, 40% of the babies that are born will die of either starvation slash malnutrition before they hit, reach the age of five. And then uh, Harold... Uh, that makes me cry. Um, this little girl, uh, she was at the VBSs. She was there uh, every day. I don't know her name. I was, in the, I was out working, and I'd come in, and she'd look at us, and she'd want a hug. She'd want to be held. She'd want to, you know, she had me wrapped around her little finger. Um, cutest little thing, little beautiful little girl. And uh, all the kids in Haiti have jet black hair, and hers is red. Um, they <clears throat> The reason her hair is red is um, she has a, um, a protein deficiency. And if nothing changes in her diet, she's going to die. But God is still sovereign in Haiti and in the United States. We were forced um, to answer that question, like John was just talking about. 
And um, we were also challenged to feel the pain that the Haitian people feel. And a lot of times, you know, I've been on mission trips before, and a lot of times we kind of block it out. And we say, okay, we're here to help, but we just get so focused on the helping that we forget to actually feel the pain that these people are going through. And so Pastor Greg said a great example um, because you could see how he cared for these people and how he felt their pain. And he, you know, encouraged us to ask the Lord to break our hearts for these people, to break our hearts like his heart is broken for these people. And, you know, you look in the Gospels, and when Jesus moved and did miracles, a lot of times it says he was moved with compassion. He didn't just do it. He was had compassion on the people that he was touching. And, you know, if we just do, if we just do what we're supposed to do and help people, it just becomes a to-do list for us, and it just becomes something we check off. But if we have compassion, if we're filled with the compassion of the Lord, and move in that, it's a completely different experience than if you just do it because you know it's a good thing to do. And so we were, we were faced to, we encouraged to answer that question of, God, break our hearts. And it was the very first night. And as you can see, a lot of our team members are experiencing that because we felt on some, some small level what these people are feeling. And I would encourage you to do the same, to feel the way that God feels. Ask the Lord to, and it's something that I continue to do because now that we're home doesn't mean like, oh, well, I had compassion two weeks ago when I was in Haiti, so now I'm good. It's continuing to allow the Lord to change your heart and say, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. You know, let me have compassion like you do because God's heart breaks for people. Not only people that are hungry, people that sleep on concrete floors, but people that don't know him, people that have no idea um, what he has done, what, how he sent his son to come and to die. And our hearts need to break for those people, you know, and to have compassion on them the way that the Lord has compassion on those people. Thank you. Thanks, Terry. So I get to be the caboose on <coughs> this, uh, this train that's telling the story and the journey of what we experienced over the last week. And one of the things that, um, I mean, I've, I've been on missions trips before and experienced different things in my life, but one of the things that Greg did that impacted us the most is that, you know, you can, you can do all kinds of missions trips and you can do all, pro, all these kinds of projects and you can feel a sense of accomplishment like you've really done something. But early on, for I think it was the first night or so, Greg made a pretty incredible statement. He said, you can't save Haiti and you can't give it hope either. That's the way you start off your week. Isn't that great? Really uplifting. Thanks, Greg. <laughs> but what he was saying was very important. We can't fix Haiti. We can't save Haiti. We can't give Haiti hope. Although I did see a few t-shirts in the airport of teams coming in saying they're bringing hope to Haiti. Sorry, no offense if you have one of those. But the problem is, is that only Jesus can save Haiti. Only Jesus can bring hope to people. No missions team can do that. But what Greg did over this week was allow us to have to answer questions that many times we don't want to face. And they're questions that you and I don't have to be in Haiti on a rooftop during a debrief after you're tired and you're sweating and you're exhausted and then you're having to grapple with what Jesus is saying to you. You and I can ask, answer those questions right here and all of us have to answer those questions. 
And so what I'd like to do is just take a couple moments to reflect on some of the questions that we had to struggle with while we were there and try to figure out what Jesus is saying to us from scriptures and from our experience. The, the first question that we were kind of confronted with is, one of the, it's the way that Greg had, had talked about it, but we all had to come to grips with, why was I born in the United States? Why was I born in a place of wealth and abundance and privilege? And why was somebody else born in Haiti? A place with a broken government and broken systems and poverty and disease and all these other issues that we, most of us, never even have to consider. Why? Why was I born here and they were born there? It seems completely unfair. Why would God, in his sovereignty, choose me to be here and them to be there? Anybody ever thought about that before? I'm sure we have. It's not fair. But then if you start to look at the scriptures, there, there's a reason. God is sovereign, which means God is in control. God knows what's best. God not just doesn't allow things. God causes all things for his purpose. That's hard to swallow. All things. Listen to what Paul said in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 22 to 27. Paul is talking <clears throat> to the Greeks, and he says, this is Paul stood in the, in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For I've walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, um, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of the heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. In other words, God is sovereign. He's over everything. He gives us everything. And then Paul says this in verse 26 and 27. He says, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. What was Paul saying? The time that you live, this era of time, God chose for you. The place that you live, you didn't choose it, God chose it for you. The circumstances that you find yourself in, in are not your choice, they're God's choice. And why did God do this for any of us living in the United States or anybody living in Haiti or anybody living on this planet? Why did God do that? For one reason, that's through some circumstance or time or place or whatever has gone on in our life, that we would reach out for God and find Jesus. That's the reason that we're here. That's the reason that we've been born. That's the reason that God has allowed things to happen. And in God's sovereignty, he understands things that we don't understand. And one of the things that Greg said that was really great for us to hear, you're hearing lots of Greg Barshaw quotes today because he had some profound wisdom for us. He said, kind of paraphrasing what Paul was saying, is that God places people in the place and position where they have the best view of the cross. And if that's in Haiti, in a place of displaced people, living in a shack on the side of the hill, where they can see the cross best, God's placed them there. If it's in the United States, where we would have abundance and wealth and all the things that we are accustomed to and comfort, if we have the best view of the cross, God places us there. That's his sovereignty. I don't understand how it works. 
But we all exist in the times and places and seasons and circumstances. Why? Because God is wanting us to find Him. And that means we have to understand that everything that happens in our life, God is at work in. Now, I already had a conversation with somebody in between services grappling with this. Wait a second. How is this fair? We're never fully going to understand. We look through a two-way mirror, and we only see one side of it. God sees both. But what has happened in Haiti, the earthquake estimates around 300,000 people lost their lives. Since that time, Greg's about 2 million. 2 million people, 2 million have come to Christ in a nation of 11 million. That's incredible. A nation that was focused on voodoo as its power has now begun to abandon voodoo, realizing there is no power there. And now they're investigating who Jesus is and what he's all about. Now, there's 300,000 people that lost lives. I don't know who those 300,000 are. God is sovereign, which means God knows what's going on. And God is orchestrating things to cause even those 300,000 in their lifetime to have a view of the cross that they can see and understand and somehow respond. That's what we have to trust in God. See, God is always orchestrating our lives to reach out to him. Here's the question for us. I don't know what your, your understanding of Jesus is. I mean, we have a wide range. You may have attended church 50 years of your life. You may have been this the first time you come to church. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you do. But the question is, what have you done with your view of the cross? Because you've had one. Guarantee you've had one. Have you allowed Jesus to transform your life? Not have you started attending church. Not even have you read the Bible and done good deeds, because there's a lot of people that do that. But have you really responded to the fact that the cross tells us that we are broken and we are sinners, and that we, the only hope that we have is not to add Jesus on to our stuff, but to surrender everything to him so that he is now the Lord of our life, which means he calls the shots, his sovereignty reigns, we obey him, we do what he wants, not what we want any longer. We'll talk about this in a minute. The greatest tragedy for us is to, to live our lives believing that we know Jesus only to discover at the end that he never knew us. We did the church thing. We wanted to be comfortable, but we added religion on the top. And what did we get? We got nothing at the end. Nothing at the end. The second question that we had to grapple with is, why was I born in a place of abundance? Why do I have money? Which, by the way, you're, some of you are already disqualifying yourself, so let me just make this clear. You are rich. Say it. I'm rich. And some of you are thinking, no, I I don't know. You don't know my bank account. It's a negative, you know, and I don't even have overdraft. I'm in trouble, right? No. We are about 2% of the population of the world lives at our, our economic level. Even those who would be considered poor in our country would be considered wealthy or middle class in other countries. Even somebody, believe it or not, not all people, but some people living on the street in the United States would be better off than people living in Haiti. I mean, seriously. They would have more resource available to them. So when the Bible refers to those who are rich, guess who the Bible is referring to? All of us. We always like to be the rich person somebody else. It's like if you become a millionaire, I'm not rich. The billionaire's rich. And you become a billionaire, no, I'm not rich. The multi-billionaire, no. Anybody who has money is wealthy. So why were we given this wealth? Why are we a nation that has been blessed by abundance? And we have what we think that we need. And we, we have all this money and all this resource. And it's always the United States to the rescue when a world crisis hits. Why? 
Listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 and 18. He says, command those who are rich, that's all of us, in this present world, not to be arrogant. Why would Paul write that? Do you know that our country is very arrogant in our wealth? We think that we're wealthy because of us. Why? Because we're Americans. We can do anything. We're entrepreneurs. We're business-minded. business, business minded. We can start something from nothing, and we can make lots of money, and we have a democracy and freedom and capitalism, and that's why we have money. No, it's not. It's because God has chosen to bless us with money. Why? Paul goes on. He says, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in their wealth, which we do all the time, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything we need for our enjoyment. In verse 18, Paul says, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Why are we rich? To share our wealth with the world. To be generous with what we have. We will be held responsible someday being born in a wealthy nation if all we did was spend our wealth on what we wanted. And I know, please forgive me, I'm not trying to offend anyone, but we are a miserable bunch of people. We are. It's crazy when, when you drive around Haiti, it's a beautiful chaos. Everybody uses their horn, but nobody gets offended. Isn't that amazing? If one person honks in the United States, all kinds of fingers come flying out windows, don't they? Not in Haiti. There's this flow that happens. And we saw like one accident in the whole time we were there. And it's incredible chaos. We'd think, how, how could you drive in this? But here you come to the United States and we're so self-centered and so miserable and so self-focused. Right out of the airport last night, I'm watching traffic fly around. Trying to get in the carpooling on 405 last night at 9 o'clock at night. People are cutting us off. I'm like, welcome home. I'd be better off driving in Haiti. Why? Because people have, it's my space, it's my car. I don't want to be late. I want to be in traffic at 9 o'clock on the 405. We have so much stuff that we've forgotten what it is to be human. We forgot what it is to live in community. We're so self-centered that we're miserable with what we have. Because what have we done? We have used our wealth for ourselves. I know that's a broad brush. And some of you are saying, well, hey, I do good things. And I'm not saying that we don't. But comparatively, we have so much that we could do. This is a personal reflection. All of us have to. I've already, you know, in my, my very tired state last night, and I've been texting Kim all week at the night times, and, you know, with Wi-Fi that's really hit and miss. I know some of us would die without Wi-Fi, right? But saying, you know, we've, we've adjusted over our lifetime to try to, we need to adjust more in the way we live our life, the way we spend money, because we're rich, and God's given us that resource to be a blessing. Author uh, Mike Batter, or Mark Batterson said this. He said, God will not judge us on what we give, but on what we keep. Think about that. Say, oh, I give, I give, I give, I give. But how much do you keep for yourself? Who was Jesus impressed with at the temple during offering? The woman who gave everything. Doesn't matter if you give a million dollars. If you have a hundred million, doesn't matter. It does matter if you give a hundred million if you have a hundred million. And it's not just about money, it's about having a change in our perspective. 
So here, let me, let me shift for a moment. We, we may go a little bit long today. I apologize. We're going to do Haitian church all the way through, okay? So go ahead, Harold, throw the pictures up on the screen. I'm going to show you two churches. This is the church uh, in Delmas in the, near the area saying that our, our church two years ago sent a team and helped uh, with Greg with Connect to rebuild uh, this church. It was destroyed in the earthquake. At the time of that getting rebuilt, the church was about 300 or so. Um, it's grown. They got, three, they, they got 300 people in that room. That's pretty impressive. You know what's more impressive? You know how big the church is now? 950 people. And they don't do multiple services. They get 950 people in that room. Why am I showing you this? Let's broaden it out here. This is a personal thing, but it's a corporate thing. We're in a building program. Two weeks ago, before I went to Haiti, we had an open house because we, we bought the building. We own it now. We're going to go through the renovation process. Lots of you walked through, and probably 95% of the comments were really positive. We're excited about it. What are we going to do with it? And then I heard a few people mumbling out the door. It's too small. It's not big enough. It's because we're used to 32,000 square feet of empty space. Is it really too small? Is that too small? Wait a second, where's the chairs? Oh, they don't have any. Cinder block and two-by-fours. Go, go to the next picture, Harold. I'm, I know, I'm a little punchy. I'm tired. It's a little jet lag. I don't know what it is. This is the church in Onaville. This is where the VBS is happening while we were building the, uh, the food storage uh, house or building right next to it. Pastor Poise pastors this church. Started not too long ago. It's about 150 people that attend this church. I want you to look at the picture. What's missing? Other than people, I get that. There's no air conditioning. There's no windows. There's no carpet. See the stage? It's cinder block with dirt. Notice what's up at the front. Looks like a trash can, doesn't it? It's not a trash can. It is a trash can, but it's not. It's Pastor Puisa's podium. And it's got a block put under here, so it's tilted up. And on Sundays... He takes a white sheet and he throws it over the top of it to make it look better. And that's what he preaches from. 150 people in that church. I guarantee the next time we go back there, there'll be at least double that. Wait a second. That's not working with church growth. You have to have just the right building and people have to be comfortable and the temperature level has to be right and worship has to be good and the pastor has to really bring it every Sunday, right? That's what grows a church. No, it doesn't. Jesus grows his church. Now, some of you are freaking out thinking, are we going cinder block and two-by-fours in the new building? (laughs) No, I know we're Americans and we couldn't put up with it. But the question is, what do we really need? No, not not what do we want. What do we really need? Not as much as we think. And if we're going to be a church that is about the mission of God in the world, then the place that we meet is secondary to everything. It is what we've talked about. It's a vehicle. And it happens to be on runway street. And a runway is something, what, that you take off from. You don't hang out on or you'll get run over. And that's what our perspective has to change at a personal level. And, I've, and side note, this Pastor Police is an amazing man who's worked with Greg. And, and Greg was helping support him as he was pastoring people. And unbeknownst to Greg, he was keeping back some of what Greg was supporting him with and saving money so he could buy this piece of land in Onaville, which is made up of three to 500,000 displaced people, 
And he, wants, he wanted to plant this church there. He wanted to, to reach people. He wanted to care for them. And now there's a church, and then there's the beginning. You know, we've, we got pretty far along on the project to have a, a storehouse where food will be distributed. There'll be a medical clinic there. There'll actually be public restrooms for the community. It's going to be a hub, not so that people can come and check out the great facility in Onaville. It's so that place can be a gateway into reaching three to 500,000 people. They're going to plant churches out of there. Out of what, cinder block and two by four and no windows? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? You and I have to come to grips with we are wealthy for a reason, to share what God has given us with the world as a means, hear me, to improve their view of the cross. When you put a medical clinic in the middle of a place where there is no medical health or medical uh, things available, and you care for people's physical needs, it clears their view to the cross. One of our challenges is taking our wealth and moving it to the side because our wealth gets in the way of the cross. We get the two confused. Our salvation is not in the dollar. Our salvation is in the cross. And many times we get those totally backwards. I could go on all morning and I won't. Third thing. And by the way, it doesn't get any easier. This is the last thing. And then the worship team is going to join us for one last song. The third question that we had to grapple with a lot of questions, but so ultimately, what is my personal responsibility? What's at stake? What is my personal responsibility when it comes to the poor in our community in the world? Not, is the, what, not, not what's the responsibility of our church. Hear me on this. I've been pastoring for long enough, and I've understand, I've, I've heard people make the comment, well, I go to a church that does this, and then we go... We're doing a great job. And maybe you participate a little bit or whatever. And so it's almost like, I guess that's a bad term, but guilty by association. You know, our church cares for the needy, so I'm caring for the needy because I'm part of the church. When you and I stand before Jesus someday, he's not going to care that you went to New Hope. He's not going to care that you went to Cornerstone or any other church that you went to. Because you and I will have a personal responsibility before him is what did we do with what we knew? How did we respond? Did we take seriously what Jesus said. Part of the scary thing about going to Haiti is now you're responsible. Now you see what's going on in the world. Now you see what God is up to. Now you see what God is saying. And so I'm going to read a passage of scripture to you in a moment. It's a familiar one. And if you've been here over the last about year, you're going to understand it's from the book of Matthew, which we've heard of a few times. And what I'm going to ask you to do in a moment, you don't have to do it yet, but I'm going to ask you to close your eyes because I want you to, to visualize what's happening in the words of Jesus. Because you and I have to come to a place where, and hear me, and this is what I want you to understand when I read this, because I know there's a variety of responses to what I'm about to read, because you've probably heard it before. There's the response that says, no, I don't want to hear it, so I want to stay insulated, I want to remain comfortable, so I just kind of write it off that, no, that really doesn't apply to me. I'm good, I go to church, I do the right thing, and so you just kind of like mentally say it's for somebody else. And then the other response is what you're about to hear is you feel an overwhelming sense of guilt. I need to do more. I need to work harder. And so then you're driven by a sense of guilt that somehow you're not good enough for God. So that's what drives you. Both of those responses are wrong. Because what I'm about to read is, is Jesus demonstrating and, and showing us the evidence of what it looks like when Jesus transforms your life. Not that you do it to be good enough, 
but that you do it because you have the compassion of Jesus, that your heart breaks for the world. And that's one of the things that Greg told us, and, and I've been struggling with it. I was, I was crying during first service during the last song, and I've been having those moments by myself of emotion, of really allowing ourselves to feel the pain and the suffering of the world around us. It's really easy to block it out. It's easy to come back to the United States and driving on clean streets and things look organized and just to fall asleep to the needs of the world. But what Jesus is going to share with us is this is what it will look like in the end, a life that was transformed and a life that wasn't. So close your eyes. This is at the end. This is at that day of judgment where Jesus is going to hold us accountable for our lives and our decisions and and what we knew was given to us and how we responded to it. And this is what will happen. So just visualize what's going on. So Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. So you have this picture of Jesus on the throne. All these people are, are going to be gathering around because it goes on and says, All the nations will be gathered before Him, so all these just, just multitudes and multitudes of people gather around Jesus on his throne. It says, Then he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So see this huge sea of people and then suddenly there's a dividing line down the middle. There's one group on the right of Jesus, there's another on the left, and now they're divided. And then it goes on. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, the sheep. He says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was even in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty, or give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothing and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And then the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So that's Jesus speaking to those on his right, the sheep, the righteous ones. That's what he says. And then it goes on. It says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why would Jesus say that? He goes on, For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for the one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Just with your eyes closed. When we truly surrender to Jesus, 
when we take full advantage of our view of the cross and we surrender our lives to him, we become the group on the right, the sheep, the righteous. Because something in us compels us to help people who are in need. Something in us helps us to learn to sacrifice our own self and what we have for the benefit of others. But if we find ourselves trying to do those things because we think we'll be good enough for God and we'll be able to stand for Him someday and get in, then we've missed something. We haven't surrendered. We haven't felt the pain of the world. We haven't allowed the compassion of Jesus to transform us. And so today, that's what my desire is for each one of us. That we would feel that. We would experience that. You see, you and I need to understand that if we really know Jesus, our life reflects in our actions, in what we do. I'm just going to ask the worship team if they would come, and we're going to sing one last song. And as we do that, I'm going to allow the song to be the message that we want, the prayer that we want to pray, and the things we want to ask God to do in us. Because this is a personal thing we have to come to grips with. It's not good enough to go to a church that does good deeds. Because Jesus looks at our life. And we are the people are the church. Not the organization, not the structure, not the building. We are the church. And therefore we as individuals have a responsibility. And so Jesus, this morning, today, please don't let us walk away feeling guilty or somehow frustrated or even feeling like, wow, that was really heavy-handed. But Lord, beyond all the things that we would use to deflect what your Spirit's saying from your words, that we would allow it to penetrate deep into our soul. That our lives would look different, our money would look different, the things that we have, the decisions that we make, the life that we live, all these things would begin to change because something's happening inside of us. We're surrendering more of who we are, and because of that, Lord, we're living more for you and less for ourselves. And as a result, we live for the world. We live for people that you love and you died for and you care for. Lord, help us. Help us to be like you are in your heart for the world. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.